Well, you know, before we get started, I felt like tonight when we were worshiping, in fact, right before Banning got up, I felt like there was um, power here for the impossible. And, uh, you know, Jesus healed everywhere he went, but there's a statement, I think it's in the book of Luke, actually, it says, and the power was present to heal. Is it, is it Luke 5? And uh, it says that, and Jesus saw that the power was there to heal. And then in the, in the uh, John 5, where it talks about the pool of Bethesda, it says that when the pool was stirred, people, the angel would come and stir the pool at certain seasons. And uh, I, I just felt like, just as we were worshiping, that there was uh, an anointing of power just entered into the room for the impossible. And, and uh, also people who are watching by video. I feel like there's just a, an epic uh, moment that we've got to capture. So if you're, in an, if you're in a situation where you need something to happen, you're in an impossible situation. I don't mean that you're in a hard situation or you're uncomfortable we're going to pray for stuff like that tonight, later on. That's fine. But if you're in an impossible situation, it might be relational, it might be financial, it might be something in your body, wherever it is, I want you to stand up specifically. Only if you're in an impossible situation. We're going to pray for people later on in the service for healing and all that kind of stuff, but you're in an impossible situation. If God doesn't come through, your ship is going to crash. Please stand in impossible situations only, please. Good. Okay. Um, those that are around them, would you just um, stand, put your hands on their shoulder, specifically on their shoulder. And uh, would you just, those that are getting prayed for, just, uh, I want in one word, say it's uh, physical or it's relational or whatever. Don't even tell them the circumstances. But I want them just to know what dimension they're praying to. It's financial, it's mental, whatever it is. I want you just to, just in one phrase, in just 20 seconds or less, just give them a little hint of which direction they're praying into. And here's what I want us to do. When we're praying, after you get that figured out, when we're praying, I don't want us to just pray, Jesus, your, you know, your will would be done. I want us right now just to release the impossible into these situations. And I believe for the next couple of months, we're going to begin to hear feedback about this night, about God doing the impossible. And I was thinking about the angel who said, told Mary, nothing shall be impossible with God. No rhema of God shall go unfulfilled. And so let's pray right now. So you should, have you guys all interviewed them just real quickly? Okay, I want someone to take the lead. And I want you just to just begin to declare into that area, God's going to answer your prayers we just declare whatever the Lord tells you, but it's move right now into a gift of faith. I want you to move in a gift of faith right now and begin to declare over them these days are a new, this is a new day in God for you. Just pray that right now. And I, I, then I'm going to lead you in just a couple of minutes for corporately for um, our, our nation. Something powerful is happening right now. Just... Just press in for another minute. Let's not let go of this minute. Let's not let go of this moment. Just press in. Something's being birthed in the room. The room is pregnant with something birthed from God. Just, let's just press in another minute. As we're praying, people are being released from addiction. Uh, it's not even... Uh, some of the, I think there's uh, two people here that you, you're addicted 
But um, there are children. I, I felt that there are several people who are praying for their addicted sons and daughters. And I felt like the Lord, I saw the Lord cut the chains of the bondage of addictions. Lord, we just release that right now. Prodigals would go home. Thank you, Lord. Release that right now. Financial miracles. How many of you are standing specifically for a financial miracle? Would you raise your hand? You're being prayed for specifically for a financial miracle. Raise your hand for a minute. The Lord did a financial miracle in uh, Kathy in, in my life, in the life of my family about five years ago. It's, it's perpetuated to this day. Lord, we release that right now. What you've done, what I've freely received, I release over these people who are raising their hands and over the people who are viewing right now, that, Lord, that you would break the power of poverty, the spirit of mammon that would try to control people through money, through the worry of things. And, Lord, we prophesy, Matthew 6, that we don't have to worry about where we're going to sleep, what we're going to wear, or what we're going to eat. For the Father knows full well that we need these things. But when we seek first the kingdom, here's the word, and His righteousness, all these things will be added to you. And Lord, I just remind you of your word right there that all these things will be added to you for these people who have been seeking the kingdom, that there would be a release over them right now in Jesus' name, a new release for finances in the name of Jesus, that it would rain money, it would come in from places that they've never even thought of, it wouldn't even be related directly to their labor, it would be related to grace and the season of grace that we're in. In Jesus' name, we just release that right now over us, over our families, and people who have lived in poverty for generations. Lord, I break that welfare spirit, that generational poverty spirit, off of uh, our people, off the people who are watching, Lord. We just release that, that there would no longer be that poverty mentality, that poverty spirit. We wouldn't sabotage our, our own economy. Lord, we just release right now prosperity, that it would be as it was in the days of the book of Acts when there was no need among them. Lord, we release that over them right now in Jesus' name, over us as a family, that there would be no need among us in Jesus' name, that generosity would break the power of poverty and faith, Lord, that we would live in heaven's economy and not our own. Thank you, Lord. Well, we pray for physical miracles in the life of people's bodies right now, that we would begin to move in from healing into divine health, that people who have terminal illnesses or that are standing for people who have terminal illnesses, that we would have an end suddenly. There would be a sudden act of God in that He turns around the circumstances, even resurrections. In Jesus' name, we just release that over people, that we live at new levels in the kingdom, from the kingdom. That's good. And everybody who's getting prayed for, say, I receive that in the name of Jesus. Good. You can sit and we'll pray some more. You guys doing good tonight? You know, we just uh, started live streaming, and I think it was four nights ago. Let's see, whatever, that, that would have been Tuesday night. As Kathy wakes up in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, and she rolls over and she said, "And she said, are you you awake?" I said, "Yeah." She said, "You know, we're going to start live streaming." This is her first word. Six o'clock in the morning. I just woke up. She rolls over and kind of 
gets in my arms and she said, you know, we're starting live streaming this week. I said, yeah. She said, it's live. I'm like, I'm not even all the way awake. I'm like, yes. She said, it means they can't edit it. They can't edit the streaming. Six o'clock in the morning, like she woke, she must have been in intercession all night. I said, I think it's got a, like a five minute delay. She says, no, I talked to Tim. It's live. Well, I said, well, I think Bill will understand. He'll be more careful about the way he speaks. It's funny how my wife just wakes up in intercession for Bill like that and woke up praying for him. And Anyway, I prayed for him through the whole service that he would just use real wisdom. So I was thinking about things you, you shouldn't say on live streaming, and it, when I got all done, I didn't have a message. <laughs> Dang. Well, whatever. Maybe we should just have ratings for our streamings. Like this is G, this is PG, this is R. <laughs> View this with your children. How many know the Bible is definitely PG? At least PG. Some stories are R. I mean, they, they dumb them down so that you can read them to your children. You know, things like killing a whole bunch of people with the jawbone of a donkey. Notice how I use donkey? Practicing for my message. We're streaming. <laughs> well, maybe we should pray. Lord, we just thank you. <laughs> Come on, man. We just thank you, Lord, for... <laughs> I just thank you for myself. <laughs> Yeah, that, we, that you love us just the way we are, God. We just we pray for your grace to be on everything that we do and say tonight. Father, we pray that, you would, um, that, that your power would transcend our words and that you would invade our lives. Lord, we just give you the invitation that you don't even have to knock. You can just come in. You don't have to knock. Lord, our door isn't locked. You can come in. Just come in whatever you want. Father, in fact, you can just stay there so you don't have to even leave. Lord, we just... We just want you to inhabit us in everything that we do and say, the way we think. We want to be inhabited by God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. You know, 2008, they prophesied, the prophets prophesied that 2008 was the year of breakthrough. And, and how many of you had a, a breakthrough this year? And um, that's good. Well, there's, just a, there's a few days left if you, haven't, if you didn't raise your hand. How many of you didn't realize that when the prophets prophesied that you had that we were going to have a breakthrough, that there was something to break through? <laughs> like I always wondered, if, you know, um, when the walls of Jericho fell down, if the children of Israel thought that was good news or bad news. Because you know the good news is that you know the, you know when the wall, before the walls of Jericho fell, is like not only were the walls separating them from the enemy, but the, it's also separating the enemy from them. <laughs> 
It's just a thought, like, you know, when the walls fell down, then, then the war began. And uh, I don't know if you thought about this, but those walls, you know, they, they, they've kept us from prosperity, but they've also kept us from a battle. <laughs> and so, uh, I don't know, for me, you know, when everyone started prophesying, it was a year of breakthrough, I'm like, whew. Um, I know what breakthrough means. It means there's something to break through. And the Lord's, uh, I guess in 2008, the Lord's tired of us walking around something we refuse to break through. And finally he said, hey, this is the year of breakthrough. And uh, I love uh, Joshua Jericho because he says he meets this guy the night before the battle, you know, and he's, and he's really stressed about the whole deal. And I probably would too. And he, says, and he sees this big guy and he says, finds out he's an angel and he says to him, are you for us? Or are you against us? And the angel says, no. <laughs> Wait a second. Are you for us or are you against us? No. No's not on the list. And then he goes, no, rather I come as the captain of the Lord of hosts. The question isn't, am I on your side? The question is, are you on my side? And I think, how many of you have changed sides this year? That you've allowed the Lord, you've, instead of saying, Lord, please bless my activities, that you finally come to a place where you've gotten on His side and you're like, Lord, let me know what you're blessing so I can be a part of your activities. There's a big difference, isn't there, between you getting what you want and God getting what He wants. And so um, I, I just say that this is, that we've moved from breakthrough into occupation. Napoleon said this, he said, the object of war is victory, but the object of victory is occupation. And how many of you know that the object, the object of occupation is transformation? And so the goal isn't that we would just have a breakthrough, that we would, that we would come into a promised land, that we would break into new places into, and, and that we would position ourselves into new realms. And how many of you realize that as we have a breakthrough, we're breaking, in th- we're breaking into new realms? We've been talking a lot and about the seven realms or the seven mountains is, is some of the buzzwords we've been using for these, these realms of society that have been strongholds, whether it's the media, the educational, uh, or the, or the um, uh, business, finances, economic. There's, there's strongholds. There are mountains that have yet to be taken. And this last year, the Lord said, this is a year of breakthrough. There's time for us to come in, into these mountains and begin to do battle with, the, with the, uh, the principalities and powers that are holding these, these mountains. But how many of you know it's not just for the sake of victory, but it's just for the sake of occupation and ultimately transformation that we want these cities. When the children of Israel stepped over the, the River Jordan, and I've talked a lot about this, they didn't just step into... Uh, they didn't just step over a line in the first heaven, the visible empire, but they also stepped into, uh, into a new epic season in the third heaven. And God began to do miracles. Instead of doing miracles to them, in other words, their clothes didn't wear out. They had supernatural weather system. They had supernatural food. And God went from doing miracles to them to doing miracles through them. And how many of you know that it takes new skills to live in a new season? There's a quote um, I've read a couple times lately. In times of change, learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully prepared to deal with the world that no longer exists. Eric Hoffer said that. In times of change, learners inherit the earth 
Well, the learned find themselves beautifully prepared to deal with the world that no longer exists. How many of you know that in, a time, in new epic seasons, it requires new ways of thinking? It requires new ways of thinking, new ways of looking at things, new, a new anointing, new skills. And when the children of Israel came into the promised land, the, the, no longer did they have supernatural food, no longer did they have supernatural clothes and supernatural weather, but God was moving through them supernaturally. All their battles were supernaturally won by God. And so we're coming into this new epic season, and it's, and it's important for us, as the prophet said in the book of Isaiah 42, that I think it's the ninth verse, he said, Sing to the Lord a new song. The former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim new things to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. I'm, I think that singing and worship is the right thing to do as we come into new seasons. The Lord sent the tribe of Judah out often into battles, and Judah means praise. But I also believe that there's a double meaning, that when, the, when he says, sing to the Lord a new song, I believe he's not just talking about singing, but he's also talking about a new way of thinking. He's using the word song for a new way of thinking. How many know that Jesus said that John sang the dirge and, he, and Jesus played the flute? He said that when John sang the dirge, you, you didn't mourn. When I played the flute, you didn't dance. How many of you know that it was never recorded Jesus played a flute? Or that John actually sang a dirge, but he's using music as a metaphor for, for different seasons. When John was ministering, it was time to sing the dirge because John baptized in the baptism of repentance and death. And Jesus played the flute. Why? Because Jesus spoke of redemption. He spoke of a time of joy. And how many know that the kingdom of God is not an eat or drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy? Some people are still baptized into the baptism of John. In the book of Acts, they were, he, uh, Paul meets these people and he says, what baptism were you baptized into? And they said, we were baptized into John's baptism. We didn't even know anything about the Holy Spirit baptism. How many know there's a whole bunch of church still, of the church still baptized into the baptism of John? They're still singing the dirge. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is joy. Not the dirge. So we're coming in. <laughs> that was actually a good word right there. We're coming into a new season, and it's a time to sing a new song. And I want to talk to you a little bit about strategies and some of the things the Lord shared with me. On the way to Spain, we were, we were just uh, in Spain a week or two ago. Um, I've never been to Spain, but I kind of like the music. I can't sing that anymore. On the way there, the Lord uh, told me that what Nashville is to the music world and what Hollywood is to the movie world, that Bethel will be that to the world of the reformers. And um, I saw people coming here from all over. You know, when you want to be in the, if you want to be in the movies, you want to be an actor. How many of you know most people move to Hollywood to become an actor? A lot of people in Nashville, we have several churches that we relate to closely in Nashville. A lot of people go to Nashville to, to become you know, musicians and to um, promote their music. And I saw the Lord using this as an Antioch, a place where people came from all over to get equipped and trained and then sent out. And I really feel like it isn't just Bethel, but I, I, think, it's, I think the whole Reading region. The, it's, this is going to be a training and equipping center. And I think that the Lord is going to uh, develop a culture uh, that actually sustains uh, reformers um, 
calls out reformers, calls out revivalists. You know, one of the things, like in the Silicon Valley, I grew up in San Jose, uh, Sunnyville actually, and before it was called the Silicon Valley, but what's happening now is that if you want to do anything in the area of, of electronics and computers and technology, you move to a place where the culture around it sustains that. Because, you know, if you need parts, if you need technicians, one of the challenges that some of our, uh, our whole tech department, our whole IT department has had, is finding qualified people. Because most, most of the really highly qualified people in the IT world, they move to places that actually have a culture that sustains that whole IT mentality. And so um, I, I think that there are cultures when... You, you know, when you move to Nashville, there are, there are producers, there are, um, there are songwriters, there's musicians, there's all, all that, that it takes to sustain that, that uh, music culture has been developed over years and years and years. And I really believe that the Lord wants to create something here. He wants to create a, a, a culture that actually, that actually draws out and, and sustains Reformers. I believe that there's Jonathan Edwards' uh, uh, kind of anointing mantle. There's uh, there's uh, Martin Luther uh, a mantle. Even Martin Luther King kind of mantle. That Banny was talking about not too long ago. I used to think those guys were the same two guys. Same guys actually. I actually preached a message that didn't even realize that Martin Luther and Martin Luther King were two different people. I've got a little bit more educated now than that. But yeah, I even ended with, I was preaching about Martin Luther, and I ended with, I have a dream. <laughs> it's actually a great message. The two, those two guys, they should have known each other. <laughs> so I really believe that we're, that we're moving into a new season in that, um, we're moving into occupation and we're moving into a place where God's going to create a culture of reformers. And I've been on this uh, subject for so long in my own heart, and I know Bill has too. It, like, my passion is to see the world transform. Like, I love to train and equip people. Uh, personally, like, it's probably the most fun I have in life is teaching. I love to teach people. I love to see the lights come on in people's eyes. I love to see people moved by God and I love to see miracles and all that, but more than anything, for me personally, what drives me is to see whole cultures transformed. And um, I, I really believe that we're moving in this place of cultural transformation. And one of the things that's, that's in my mind is like how our cultures actually transform. Like, so we have reformers, we have people who God puts an anointing on for reformation, you know, reformation. And uh, I believe that, that as the church gets reformed, that the world gets revolutionized. And so I, I was, I've been asking myself this question. I wake up in the middle of the night with it, and I'm writing a leadership book right now, and, and I'm doing this um, whole two or three chapters on, like, how is culture actually influenced? Like, how does culture, specifically, how does culture change? Like, what, is, what, what brings cultural transformation, even negative cultural transformation? The Lord gave me this verse um, about uh, on, when I was in Spain on the way home. Uh, in fact, I was working on a chapter and I, I got this verse, Matthew 10:16. Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Behold, I send you as sheep. It's Matthew 10:16. Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves, 
So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And a, a few things began to you know, stir in me. I was, just, I was just sitting in the plane as we were coming home, and I was thinking about that verse over and over. Behold, I send you. And first of all, it was, it's proactive. Like It's the Lord sending us out as sheep among wolves. And I started to have this thing about, you know how Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me? And everyone left? They all left him? Well, it's interesting because then the Lord sent us as sheep among wolves. In order for you to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. How many of you know that the Lord made us tasty to the world? Uh, you didn't get that, did you? I have this sense that the Lord's sending us out among wolves because he wants them to, in, to, he wants them to t- have a taste test of the body of Christ so they can become his disciples. He specifically sent us out. He said, listen, I've made them like wolves. I've made you like sheep. And they want to eat you. They are hungry for you. What you have, they are hungry for. They are hungry to taste test the body of Christ. They should be able to taste and see that he is good. I have a feeling, but how many of you know that part of the struggle is that people, um, they, they often consume what they can't digest. I have a lactate intolerance. If I eat dairy products, I won't give you the details, especially on streaming. It's all answers to my wife's prayers. But let me say this. When I eat dairy products, they pass right through me. My body can't assimilate dairy products. And the Lord wants us, He wants people to be able to consume us, but He wants, us to, he wants them to be able to assimilate and, and to di- be able to digest what, what they consume. And I, I really feel like the Lord's doing something in giving us strategies. And on the way home, on the plane, the Lord just began to talk to me, and He said, we're moving from being proactive to being strategic. And that, was, that, that theme had been going on in my heart for about a month before this, but the Lord told me, we're moving from being proactive to being strategic. And so he goes on to say, not, if I, not only if I send you out in the, uh, as sheep amidst wolves, so be shrewd as serpents, he says, and innocent as doves. Be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And the Lord said to me as I was writing this chapter, he said, you, the church has done the dove thing pretty well, but we've not known anything about serpents. And I, I, I had this phrase... Maybe it's time for us to start studying the tactics of serpents so we can emulate their strategies and overcome their purposes. How many of you have ever watched HGTV? Put your hands up. Or some of you are like half master, like, I'm not telling anybody if I watch that or not. For those of you that haven't had the blessing of watching HGTV, my wife happens to be addicted. The HGTV, she TiVo's all the H. I tried to like get on to like TiVo of uh, like a, a football game, and it says, uh, "Do you want to?" Uh, <laughs> sorry, we're currently taping HGTV. Would you like to get rid of that to tape your sports show? Of course. <laughs> I mean, the 49ers should overcome any HGTV show. They can't beat a team. They should at least beat HGTV. Hey, they won today. Did you notice that? 
And now we have a coach that is a radical believer. I don't know if you saw him on the sidelines today, but he had a big wooden cross around his neck, hanging right here. It's like, that's awesome. At least if we don't beat anybody, at least we can pray for him. HGTV is the home improvement channel. It's all about home improvement. And, and Kathy Tebow's them, so oftentimes, you know, we, we travel a lot and we're busy a lot, so what will happen is we'll sit down and we'll watch five or six or seven episodes. We'll just fast forward through the commercials and fast forward through the... I just like to, like, just show me how the house was when we started and how it is when it's finished and get rid of all the heart stuff. Just show me the, the woodwork. And uh, not long ago, we were watching the, about, I don't know, we watched several of them together. And I noticed something that maybe it wouldn't be as evident if you just watch one show a week or watch them whenever they're on or whatever. But when we watched one right after another, I realized in this particular, um, maybe four or five or six that she had recorded, that, there, that one third of all the HGTV shows are homosexuals. I never really realized it before. And once in a while, they have a homosexual on there. But when she T-voted him, I realized, like, wait a second, about every third or fourth show is a homosexual. Now, that's kind of interesting because only 3% of Americans claim to be homosexual. Actually, the truth is they just did a survey. I think it's less than 1%, but let's just say it's 3%. 3% of, our, of the people, Americans, claim to be homosexuals, but a third of HGTV... Uh, features homosexual couples remodeling or buying homes or whatever it is. Now, I thought, and I, I turned to Kathy, this is maybe a month ago, and I said, isn't this odd? Doesn't it seem odd to you that, that one-third of all the couples that we watched tonight are, are homosexuals? You'd have to work to do that. You'd have to do that on purpose. You couldn't do that on accident. And then I noticed that one-third of those couples that are homosexuals have their children with them. They're homosexual couples. And, I, and I, thought, I thought about something. Remember, the, this verse is going through my mind. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And I started realizing something, that HGTV, that's really not about home improvement. It's really about homosexual evangelism and a strategy to get you to come into their homes. It's a perfect strategy. Come into our homes and see that, our, see ho, that we are just like you. That our sexual orientation doesn't keep us from being happy people with children. They're so quiet. Are you just thinking? Or... And, and I started realizing something that it's... <laughs> you know, if they would have... If, they would, if every couple on there, on HGTV, were homosexuals, I bet you that three-quarters of their audience would be gone. I bet you their TV ratings would drop into the toilet and they would be off the air. Because they're smart enough to know that if they make it a show by homosexuals for homosexuals, that heterosexuals aren't going to watch, and that's going to ruin the reason why they actually have a show in the first place. Because those shows aren't on to entertain homosexuals. They're there to get you to change the way you think about homosexual lifestyles. And they know that if they put the show on and every home improvement show is about, is about two homosexuals living together, pretty soon you'll just get mad and turn it off and you'll realize what's happening. So it's a great strategy to have two-thirds or, or three-quarters of the people heterosexuals because they know that they can draw you in and then they can feed to you uh, just subtly. Listen, it's all about home improvement. Come into our house and see. And then you notice that, and they always, almost always show you their bedroom where... John and Henry sleep. 
or Mary and Jane. You notice on the home improvement shows, it's almost they'll always show you them remodeling the bedroom or when they buy a house, this is the bedroom. And what are they saying? What's the subtle message? Like, this is just like you. We're just like you. I don't know if you get where I'm going right now. But they're, they're, the, little by little, we're being, we're being transformed. Now, I'm not talking about positively, but our culture is being transformed. And 3% of the, of the population is controlling about 98% of the political agenda. Listen, I'm really not talking about homosexuals tonight. I'm not mad at anybody. I, I, you know, those people, those people deserve to be loved just like anyone else in the world. I, I don't like the way we respond to them. You know, we, it's, it's kind of funny to me, like, our strategy is to carry protest signs down to the gay parades. Well, not, not really. People are just falling down finding God there. Well, Jesus said it. He said, these signs will follow those who believe. I'm not exactly sure what we think we're doing, really. Like, like do, we, do we actually, like, maybe we think, like, the homosexuals don't know how we feel about their lifestyle. So we're bringing signs down so that, just to remind them. Like, this is how we feel about your lifestyle. Just so, you know, you know that we love you. Just really strategic. Our idea of strategic is like getting the signs in order. I'm, I'm maybe offending some people tonight. I'm really not trying to. But it's just part of me. You know, in, it, it, this, is, this is like... Christian TV, there, listen, I'm, I believe in Christian TV, it's great, but this is the part that kind of, like, maybe needs to be rethought. We have Christian TV by Christians for Christians, then we add an evangelistic message at the end of every show for all the people who aren't watching to pray. Very, very covert. Hidden, leavened, into the society with our picket sign. Pink and mammoth. And then when people reject us, then we have this like, we are rejected for Christ. Jesus said, don't you know if you want to live righteously, you'll be persecuted for my name. All those who want to live righteously will be persecuted for my name. There's a difference between being persecuted for the name of Jesus and being persecuted for the spirit of stupid. You know, some people could give away $1,000 bills with their attitude and people would still not take them. It's just a thought. I feel like the key word is strategic. That I really do feel like that the word of the Lord is to study serpents and emulate their ways. I'm not talking about emulate their heart or being evil or anything like that. It's probably obvious, but maybe not to our TV audience. It feels kind of cool, like I hope my mom's watching. I'm not talking about taking on evil motives or evil heart or anything like that. I'm just talking about the way that they strategically go after their message and um, Jesus said this in Luke 8, uh, 16, 8. He said, 
his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age, Jesus said, are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. How many of you know that the Lord wants us to be strategic and maybe the word shrewd is a key word for this season? That we would be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Well, in the wrong context, that sounds wrong, doesn't it? But I, I really feel like there's something about us moving in society. Jesus talked about, he gave a parable about leaven that was hidden into the loaf, and it raised the whole loaf. I feel like the Lord is sending us out into the seven mountains, if you will, but covertly. I, I'm, I'm fine with overt ministry. Like, I have no problem with peaceful protesting, to be honest, as long as it's not the only, like, as long as it's not our only strategy. If the only strategy we have is protesting, I have a struggle with that. Because I feel like the, the, we only have as much influence in people's lives as, we have, as they have value for us. Let me say it again. We only have as much influence in people's lives as they have value for us. And if we destroy any... any every time we destroy the, the highway of value, honor, and favor... We take away our ability to bring influence to people. Think about it. When somebody comes to your door, a particular, like Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, they're, they're not going to convert me, and I'm definitely not going to convert them. You know why? I have no value for them, and they have no value for me. The only people they're going to convert are people who have value for them. Huh. Okay. That's a good word, actually. There's, there's, um, hmm. You know, there, there's a lot of people, we have to realize that we were raised in denominationalism. Denomination means divided nations. It means this. It means that we gathered because we agreed. We were raised in denominationalism. We gather because we agree and we divide when we don't agree. Now, we have to understand that this is really huge in the way that we think. Not just about church. It's huge in the way we think about life. Because it's in our DNA to only build relationships with people that we agree with. And if we don't agree with somebody, then we have to have a reason to be in relationship with them. So we feel compelled to, if we're going to be in relationship with somebody who has the opposite core values of the kingdom, then we have to be there in order to convert them to our way of thinking. What would happen if we just loved people because they're people? You know, everybody that I know and love, I want to receive Christ. I don't want to be misunderstood. But I don't want to be in a relationship with someone who's trying to sell me a car. I don't want to feel manipulated by someone who's trying to sell me soap. I can't tell you how many times, actually I can, I was invited three times over to over people's houses. Kathy and I were invited three times over people's houses under the guise that they wanted to build a relationship with us. And then, so we're sitting down for dinner. Some, twice we came where there was other, come, we're having some friends over for dinner. We'd love for you to come. They've never taken any interest in us before. We're like, this is really cool. We're going to build some new friends. And then and about an hour into the meeting, I find out it's a meeting about selling soap. I love the soap, actually use the products. But I hate the fact that I'm being coerced into the soap deal. What would happen if I just got to be able to be friends with somebody and if they got better soap than I do, I just buy their soap? Like, you smell good. Where'd you, yeah, this is what I use. You know, the, 
there's something weird about being about having to be in relationships so that I can have an agenda with somebody. But in, in denominationalism, because we only gather when we agree, then we need a reason to be with people that we don't agree with. And I see that there's two, there's two things happening. I see that the, the church is beginning to react to the denominational mindset. To, but sometimes when we react... We build, this is Bill's words, he said many years ago, when you react to something, you typically build something worse than what you reacted to. And so I watch the, I'm watching the church re- react to denominational spirit, to that denominational spirit that says, I have to agree with this person in order to have a relationship with them. I have to agree with this person in order to go to this church. I have to agree with everything they say. Loyalty gets translated as, if, you agree with, if you're loyal to me, you'll agree with me. We've talked a lot about this, but I see this working out in the way that we think about the world. And so one of the responses that I see that's happening in the church, there's a, there's a large movement to be inclusive. Inclusive in the sense that pretty soon I've heard Christians uh, share this recently. I mean, I mean, I'm talking about people that we would respect, that they're beginning to say, well, there are many ways to God. You know, the Muslims are just, they're kind of like back here, but they're on their way to God. And the, the, the Hindus are on their way to God. And, and we, we open up the, the doctrinal door so that we can include all these people. And, and in order to include these people, because we come out of denominational mindset, we have to figure out some way that either they're going to agree with us or we're going to, tra- be, we're going to change what we believe so we can be in relationship with them. And it's gotten so, it's gotten so serious that we do things to, to be um, socially relevant, like we even ordain homosexuals, we ordain people who, I'm not saying, we, of course we should love everyone, we should love people who, I mean, among us every Sunday, we have people who have been in and out of prison and molested children, and we've had murders among us, we've had uh, different, you know, people of different uh, sexual orientations among us. How many of you know we should be inclusive in our ability to love everyone? But when it comes to... to, to um, ordaining people for leadership, how many know that there's, there, there, there ought to be some different values in who you allow people to follow? Are you with me? Listen, but I'm, I'm not railing against the machine. I'm trying to say that it's the way that we were brought up. We were brought up to believe that if I'm going to be in relationship with somebody, I have to agree with them. So one of two things happens. Either I, I become... Uh, monasteristic, monetaristic in that I don't, I don't, I don't have anything to do with anybody who who doesn't agree with me, or I open up the door to um, doctrinally, and I begin to be inclusive, and I begin to find ways to include what they believe and what I believe, so that I can have a relationship with them. And I just want to say this: that Jesus hung out with people he totally didn't agree with, and they love him so much that he, they call him a partier. Jesus didn't break his core values to, to be in relationship with people because he didn't grow up in denominationalism. <laughs> I was kind of funny supposed to be. Anyway, but Jesus was, listen, how would you like to hang out with someone who never did anything wrong? Wait, that's one thing. How would you like to bring them to the place where you're doing stuff wrong? How would you like to invite him there consistently? They invited Jesus to their drunken parties. That's why they called him a drunkard. Listen, in Jerusalem, in Jewish custom, everybody drank wine. I, I just got back from Spain, Kathy and I, and we were after, the, after we got done at the conference, every conference session, they would feed the people. 
And so there was, I don't know, 150 people or something, 200 maybe. And we, so they had provided this big dinner for all the conferences. On, on every table, there was wine in front of everyone. And, you know, I understand it's not the American way, but in Europe, it's a totally different thing. So when they called Jesus a friend of sinners and a drunkard, he, they weren't talking about the fact that he sipped wine because that was, custom, that was their custom in, in Jewish culture that, that people drank wine. They were, they were saying that Jesus hung around with drunk people. The amazing thing is he did it by invitation and not through intrusion. <laughs> Why would you invite Jesus to your drunken party when he doesn't get drunk? Jesus doesn't get drunk. Why would you invite him to your drunken parties? There's something about transcending love. There's something about love that transcends your fear of people. There's something about love that breaks down the barriers. And you don't have to agree with people to be able to love people and include them in your core, close relationships. Let me say it this way. You know, you can have a, a relationship with someone who's a homosexual without an agenda to convert them just because you love them. I don't mean you wouldn't want to see them converted. You understand there's a fine line. But there's something about, I'm in relationship with you so that I can convert you, that the person who you're in relationship with can feel it. I remember years ago um, that we, we, were, we had this men's meeting in Weaverville, and we were, and there was a lot of, we had a lot of single women in our church who had um, children, and so we were going to do this adopt a child, fathers adopt a child thing, so that the children wouldn't be fatherless. And uh, one of the gals who who had uh, two sons came to us, and she said, "Please don't include my sons on your list." So, uh, I said, "Why?" She said, "Because I don't want my son to be loved because of a program." If somebody doesn't love our, my sons because, because they love them, then I don't want them to be something that... I don't want them to be a part of a program that my sons... You take them fishing because they're, they're, you're fulfilling your program. I, want, I don't want my sons to feel like that they're, that they're part of another system where people have to love them because that's what the men's meetings or men are doing. Sometimes we develop systems because we lack heart. I said sometimes. I'm not talking about everything we do. I'm just talking about what, you know, if you get the kingdom in you, you start to just love people. I don't think, the, I don't think that the apostles got up in the book of Acts and said, you know, everyone who has extra stuff, I believe you should sell it and give it to the poor. I think it was something that spontaneously happened that as, the, as they were in the presence of God and as they could see that there was people around them who lacked, there was just something in them where they just said, you know, we need to give to these people. In other words, what I'm getting at, I don't think it was a program. I think people just fell in love with other people and they said, we just need to help these people. And, and, and that's the kind of love that we need. We need the kind of love that transcends uh, programs and transcends doctrinal differences and transcends people's sexual orientation where we just love people. Where we, just, where we just hang out with people because we enjoy them. And we need to ha- develop a culture where I don't have to explain to my friends why I'm hanging out with them. In our culture, if you're hanging out with someone who's really evil, you better have a, like, a, some plan of conversion. Like, well, how long do you think this is going to take? You need to have some sort of plan. Like, okay, now, 
How long, how long are you, like, are you, what, what are you sharing with them? There's something about just the pure love that you have for people that actually wants them to receive Jesus. Remember, you're a lamb among wolves, so they're already hungry for you. You have to keep them from wanting to eat you. You're tasty. The kingdom is tasty. A lot of people say, you know, well, people just aren't hungry for God. First of all, let me say this. I think that people aren't hungry for religion. I actually think people are starving for God. If you look at the most popular movies, it'll tell you where the hearts of the people are. They're starving for something that's spiritually real. They are sick of religion. Religion creates expectations it can't fulfill. It's like lust. You know, lust creates expectations. That's why Absalom raped, I mean, sorry, uh, um, the brother who raped uh, Tamar, can't think of his name right now, Ammon, what was his name? Yeah, close enough. He rapes, he loves this woman. He loves his sister. And he, it says that his love grew so passionate for her, he just had to have her. And then he finally rapes her, and when he rapes her, he can't stand her. He throws her out of the room. That's what lust does. Lust creates expectations it can't fulfill. And when, once you get what you want, when you're lusting after it, you hate it. But we have the real thing. And when people do a taste test with us, they want more. They want more of the real thing. Are you with me? And so I feel like the Lord's going to give us a strategic way of touching people. And um, when we were in um, Spain, it's my first time to... Uh, well, I guess Mexico is kind of like this too, but Spain, in Spain, 95% of the people are Catholic. It's very interesting when you have a culture that is not dominated by Protestantism. 95% of the people are Catholics. Only 20% of the people go to church. But don't... Mis- don't but what we may, like underestimate is the people are very loyal to the Catholic Church even though they may not attend. They will identify themselves as Catholics. They will argue over their Catholic faith even though they may not know the Bible. They'll argue for the, the sake of the Pope and for the sake of the Church. And what's crazy is, is that the Pope will stand up and of course you know the Catholic Church has been um, one of the greatest advocates for morality. Like they stand against abortion and all these issues. And it's funny because uh, much of Spain has become very liberal in its thinking about moral issues, but they'll still identify with the Pope. Like, they'll like, the, we're Catholic. We're, we're, the Pope's our, our man. Uh, we think the old guy's a little off on some issues, but we're still... <laughs> and what I'm getting at is this, is that there's a huge difference the way a Catholic culture relates to people and a Protestant culture relates to people. In Protestantism, we have to agree with people to have a relationship with them. But in Catholicism, people are very loyal to a system and to, to a pope and to a, a leadership that they, that they don't even agree with. In other words, the very root of the reason why people attend a Catholic church or call themselves Catholics or identify with, the, with Catholicism is much different 
than a Protestant. A Protestant agrees under doctrinal philosophical values, but a Catholic has a sense of loyalty to like a greater family. I'm not saying one's greater than the other. I'm just saying it's much different. When we were in Spain, it's a, there's a much different feel about a culture that's steeped in Catholicism. It's like there are obviously lots of negatives that we talk about, but one of the positives is, is that people don't feel... They love you. They kiss you on both cheeks and they include every... And they just, they're just like... Their people don't relate to people based on idealism or philosophies. They relate primarily based in relationship. It's a highly relational culture. And so um, I feel like um, the Lord is, is doing something in us. I, I want you to uh, turn to um, Daniel. Turn to Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. I, can, I Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in my house flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed, and visions in my mind kept alarming me. I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magi- uh, magicians, magicians, not, <sighs> not musicians, magicians, conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the vision of my dream, which I have seen, along with this interpretation. And he tells him the dream. Verse 19 Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. And the king responded and said to Belshazzar, Do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And Belshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. I want to stop right there and I want to just pick up a couple of pieces and see if I can make sense of um, what I've been trying to say tonight if it's not been clear. First thing that's interesting is that Daniel is in relationship with a king who thinks that Daniel is possessed with the spirit of the holy gods, plural. Nebuchadnezzar has a god and he names Daniel the name of his god and relates to him by the name of his god. Not Daniel's god, Nebuchadnezzar's god. And Daniel's included among the magicians and the conjures, the, the psychics of his day. He's the guy, Nebuchadnezzar's the guy that went into Israel, to Jerusalem, and, and destroyed Jerusalem, and tore down the temple, and took four kids captive. Daniel, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He brings them into Jerusalem, probably, I mean, into Babylon. It's most, most likely, it's that it's very likely that Daniel's parents were killed or captivated in that battle and that they remained in some POW camp where they died in battle. So this is a young man probably came into Babylon at 14 or 15 or 16 years old. No, maybe older than that because he was already um, in, an official in Jerusalem. He actually was captivated. He um, actually captivated Babylon. I mean, the, um, Nebuchadnezzar actually took captive some of the officials in Babylon. So maybe he's a young... 20-year-old, and he's brought into Babylon. And it's interesting that 
he, he interprets dreams and visions for the king, and he falls in love with this king. It's amazing. This king builds statues to himself and has people bow down to it. And if they won't bow down, then he throws them into the fire. He's, he's total egotist. And, and uh, if you read anything about history, about uh, the history of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was a completely wicked king that made Saddam Hussein look like a pussycat. And yet Daniel was in love with the man. He was dedicated to a man. Most likely Nebuchadnezzar made... Uh, Daniel, a eunuch. I mean, he definitely was a eunuch, but he probably he was probably made a eunuch by uh, by the king's uh, by coming into the king's camp. He's made a eunuch, and never again will he be able to marry or or any of that. And so, and here's this guy. He has every reason in the world to hate this king, to be bitter with this king. He has he's got the inside court of the king. He's got the ear of the king. He could totally be steering the king any way he wants. He could interpret those dreams to mean anything that he wants. And yet he, but and yet he has a love for a king, even though and he allows himself to be included with the magicians. He allows himself to be called by the king's god's name. Are you with me? There's something happening here where he's hidden like leaven, and and Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he's captured four boys. He thinks that he's destroyed Jerusalem. But the Lord's got another plan. And systematically and and strategically, little by little, brick by brick, these four boys are dismantling the Babylonian system from the inside out. Are you with me? How are they doing it? They're finding favor with the king. The first thing that we have to realize is that in order for us to... Bill spoke about favor today, I think, or recently. But one of the things we have to realize is the value of favor. You're not going to influence people that you have no favor with. God gave Daniel favor. It says that if you read the first few uh, chapters of Daniel, it says that God, that Daniel, that God gave favor. God gave Daniel favor with the king. Remember, he wouldn't eat the king's food. What I'm getting at is this: a man who wouldn't defile himself, a man who wouldn't change his value system, a man who didn't become like the king to influence the king. God said, "That's the kind of man I can use." And he began to put this favor and this love on, this, on these boys. And they began to come into the king's palace and influence the king. But listen, the key is this. They truly love the king. They really love the king. And what happened is, is that little by little, there was God moments. God began to set up the circumstances because he didn't have to protect, the, he didn't have to protect Nebuchadnezzar from some kind of radical Christian movement where people stand up and do things to ruin their value system so God could actually give, he didn't have to defend Nebuchadnezzar from the Christians. So he could actually give Daniel favor and, and I don't know if I... If, if I'm making sense, but it's like sometimes we so destroy our favor that, that God has to spend all his time, um, uh, um, you know, not making excuses for us, but explaining to people that we really love him, even though we're parenting, we're doing the stuff we're doing. But this man found a way into the system, and I don't think he was like, I think I'll be really nice to this king. I think he honestly loved the guy. So he's included among the magicians, and he becomes the chief music, magician. That's hard to say. <laughs> Something in me just doesn't want to believe it. But it's true. It's in the book. 
And then when he, the king has this dream, and the, and the dream is about this tree, and the, and the tree gets chopped down, and it's all about how the king's going to fall, and how he's going to go through seven seasons of, of destruction, and then God's going to restore him. And when Daniel hears the dream, and he begins to get the interpretation, it says that he was appalled. And he says to the king, I wish this was about your enemies and not about you. Man, that's so powerful. Most of us would be going, good, he's got what's coming to him. He's serving other gods and now God's, gonna, he's, God's using me to give him the interpretation that, you know what, I've been telling him about serving those other gods and Shadrach, Meshach, tried to get my friends to bow down and now he's getting what's coming to him. I mean, most of us would have smiled all the way to the sanctuary. That's the Old Testament too. But instead he says, oh, it says he was appalled, he was pale, he turned white. He said to the king, oh, I wish this was about your enemies and not about you. And the king says to him, just tell me the truth, Daniel. What is this dream about? Oh, king, this king's dream's about you, but it's not good. He begins to relate to the, to the king the dream, what the dream means. And then he says at the end of, the, of his interpretation, he said to the king, Maybe if you humble yourself, this won't happen. He's trying to, he's trying to, he's still hoping that there's a way that he can find a place of access to, to mercy for the king. Are you with me? Daniel lives through four seasons in Babylon. He lives with, uh, the, with Nebuchadnezzar, then the king's son, who's totally wicked, and then Darius, uh, who threw him in the lion's den. In fact, why don't you just turn to Daniel 6 real quick, because we're almost there, it'll take be easy and I'll be done soon. Verse 16, the king gave orders, chapter 6, the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God in whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. This is the king, King Darius says to Daniel, he gets tricked into putting Daniel in the lion's den. He signs a decree not realizing that Daniel's a Jew and he, and that he's serving another god, and, and then he finds out, once he signs the decree, that anyone who serves anybody besides Darius is put in the lion's den, he finds out that, that the, the other uh, uh, magicians, the other psychics, the other conjurers, they, they actually hate Daniel because of Daniel's standards, and Daniel won't, he, you know, he, 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 he won't get drunk with the crowd, so to speak. And they just begin to hate him. But the king loves him. So he signs this decree, not realizing that they're, that they're actually trying to kill Daniel. And so Daniel, so, and he can't change his decree because he uses his signet ring and it's all this stuff about um, sovereignty. Anyway, the, the king, Darius, says this, Then the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast in the lion's den. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God in whom you constantly serve, he himself will deliver you. This is the king. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the signet ring of nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Listen to this, verse 18. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting. Now that's my kind of fasting. That's a royal fast. You fast at night and you break fast in the morning. (laughs) And no entertainment was brought to him. He didn't watch HGTV all night. And his sleep fled away from him. Verse 19. Then the king arose at dawn and at daybreak and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he came near to the den of Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, 
Servant of the living God, has God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They have not harmed me, and as much as I've, found, I've been found innocent before him, and also towards you, O king, I have committed no crime. The guy throws you in the lion's den. He's trying to kill you <laughs> on the way to the lion's den. He goes, oh, you're God, who you serve. He'll, he'll, he'll protect you. <laughs> Then the king fasts all night, comes to the tomb. Oh, Daniel, was your God able to save you? Oh, king, live forever. That's the words of a 93-year-old man in the bottom of a lion's den with the lions licking him instead of eating him. Oh, king, live forever. There's, there's something about that spirit of Daniel that he builds a relationship with kings and what's happening little by little through the love of God and through honor and favor and listen through supernatural acts he's he's supernaturally strategically and powerfully dismantling Babylon brick by brick person by person little by little he's dismantling Babylon until the next king in the days of Cyrus, when the 70th year was over, Cyrus lets the people go back to Jerusalem. He releases all the POWs, but not only does he do that, but he rebuilds their country and rebuilds their temple. Why? Because a young man who became an old man knew how to love people who didn't agree with him. He knew how to serve them. He knew how to... He knew how to make sure that they were successful when he didn't agree with them. Man, this is so good. Years ago, we um, had Planned Parenthood come into our little community in Weaverville. Planned Parenthood is the largest provider of abortions in America. And they were going to bring they were going to open an office in our community. And, um, of course, we were pretty upset about that, and should be rightfully so. And so I began to lead um, a whole movement against Planned Parenthood. And we had, at the time, we had, I think, a couple of repair shops, and we had a service station that was right on Main Street in Weaverville, and it had this, we had this large sign, about, I think it was a six-foot-tall or so, and about three or four feet wide, and we would change it most every day with, and put different sayings on there. Not, not ads, we just put different sayings on there. And um, when Planned Parenthood was coming to town and they had to get permission from our um, board of supervisors to put a clinic in our town, I put on one side, Planned Parenthood, go home. On the other side, abortion is murder. And then when Planned Parenthood had a meeting for the community, to, and it was an informed meeting, um, I led a bunch of people down to the informed meeting. I had spent weeks just studying about Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger and their founder and and all about what they stood for and all that. And so when we, when we came into the community hall where they were having this meeting, they were expecting, you know, uh, 20 or 30 people. And I don't know how many of us showed up, but it was so, so many people, we couldn't all fit in the building. And when the, uh, the uh, Planned Parenthood representative got up to speak and talk about Planned Parenthood, I would interrupt them and uh, ask them questions, obviously loaded questions, and obviously, in a hostile crowd, I don't know that any of us would have wanted to answer those questions. And so we did that. I, I stood up in three meetings, and we packed every meeting out. I think at, the, at least the years that we were there, it was the largest meetings we've ever had in, in 
uh, Trinity County the 20 years we were there. And so um, it finally came to a vote, and we had to go to the Board of Supervisors. They had to go before the Board of Supervisors, who, um, who uh, actually control our, our county. And, um, and then different people, they allowed different people to come and speak, uh, and share their perspectives. And so, uh, obviously, Planned Parenthood's there, and they give their presentation to the Board of Supervisors, and then they allow the community to to give their perspective. Well, the first thing that happened is that so many of us showed up that they had to cancel the meeting to move the meeting to a new venue. So they moved the meeting from the courthouse to this other place, community center, and we packed that place out. I think there, I don't know what the numbers were, to be completely honest, but I guarantee you that it was probably 10 to 1 pro-life people there. And I was the speaker for our pro-life people. I, I, was, I think there was a couple other speakers. I was the main speaker for our pro-life uh, uh, movement, and so um, the supervisors, you know, we they uh, they allowed Planned Parenthood to share their plan, and while they were doing that, we were sneering and laughing and doing what people do to let the supervisors know that most of us disagreed. And then when I spoke, we all cheered, and when when anyone else spoke in opposition, we booed them and that sort of thing. Um. I gave a great presentation. <laughs> I had studied Planned Parenthood for years, and so all the, I mean, for years, for months, and so for all the statistics they had, I had statistics, and, and uh, at that time the attorney uh, general was uh, opposed to abortion, and I quoted him, and um, George, uh, I'm sorry, um, um, Ronald Reagan had just wrote a book against abortion, and I had the book with me. I mean, I had, I had spent hours and hours and hours preparing and when it was all said and done, they voted unanimously, almost, I think there was one descending vote, to let Planned Parenthood come into our town. I don't know if they were really voting for Planned Parenthood or against our rudeness. To be honest, looking back, this is many years later reflecting. I don't know if they were really voting for Planned Parenthood or against our incredible dishonor of anyone else's opinion. It's a little bit like some of the activists on both sides now. It's like, you have a right to an opinion as long as it's ours. But I walked away very disillusioned from that and spent many months just could not believe that that happened. And I'm learning something. I, I am not against, by the way, I'm not against activism. I'm not against protesting. I'm not against any of that stuff. I just don't like it when we do things dishonorably. We break the, the values of the kingdom to demonstrate our core beliefs, but we don't bring love with us. That, that's what I'm talking about. I have no problem protesting, but we, we, what we can't break are the core values of the king to demonstrate the opinions of the kingdom. When we do that, I'm not sure we get the support of the king. Are you with me? When, when we break the core values of the kingdom to articulate the values, the opinions of the king, I'm not sure that it helps to be dead right. And I think that when we're in a culture that is highly Protestant, that for us... Being right is more important than being together. 
So justice becomes more important than love. Mercy is not as important as justice. And we put justice above mercy. And if God did that, none of us would be here today. So, all, okay, so I said all that to say this. I believe that God's moving us into a strategic plan, not a plan where we don't stand up for truth or a plan where we become doormats or where we become inclusive and like, oh, anything goes and we just, you know what, we, we love people and you can just come on in here and share whatever you want. I mean, Buddhism and, and, and you know, um, Muslims and Hindus. And it's just like, they're just, you know, it's just another way to God, another way of God, to God. There's just many paths to God. No, that's a bunch of bull. But you know what? We, we can love people just as if they agreed with us because Jesus gives us permission to love people right where they're at. And there's something about just genuine love, where you just love people for right where they're at, and, you know, um, that, that causes people to experience God in, in a way that they just can't experience any other way. There's something about true love. There's something about truly loving people that allows, uh, 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 that opens up the door of invitation. There's, a, you know, um, uh, President-elect Obama has asked uh, Rick Warren to do his, um, inauguration speech and you know there's a whole group of um, you know gay people who are concerned about that I think there's a whole bunch of Christian people who are concerned on the other side and I, I'm like I just think it's awesome I think I just think it's awesome that I, I, I just my question is could that be an answer to some of our prayers we're praying for God to influence our president, we're, we're, we've been commanded to pray for our leaders and especially those who have authority over us. And I think it's just amazing that he's, that he's embracing somebody that carries our values. And I don't, I don't know Rick well. I don't know Rick at all. I've never met him. I know people who do know him. But there's something about the love of that man. It's like um, Billy Graham. There's something about the love of that man that he gets invited to, to, to you know, he's obviously a man of great standards. I remember, uh, uh, in fact, it was um, Bill O'Reilly said that, that Rick Warren's interview was the, was the best interview in all the presidential campaign, that Rick uh, Warren asked both candidates the hard questions. So it's not, it's not as if he, he doesn't keep his standards, but I, I love the way that he's loving people beyond his, his uh, their ability to agree with him. And I think that it's, there's something about the Lord just opening up doors for us into, into the, the different realms of the kingdom where the Lord's going to give us strategic places in the kingdom and we're not going to have to apologize that we're working with the psychics. We're, working, we're included with the, with the people who don't know God, who are not, they're anti-God, and there we are right in the middle of them bringing the message and we get to go there when we won't eat the king's food. Let me say this. The Lord makes a way for us when we'll love them sincerely and we won't eat the king's food. What gives you a, a place of favor with God? 
How can God trust you? He can trust you when you sincerely love the people He's put you with, even though they have a different value system, but you refuse to eat the king. You know what I mean, eat the king's food. I'm not talking about the, his delicacy. I'm talking about eating the king's food, take, assimilating the king's doctrine. You don't have to become like people. There's something in, in us that says, in order for people to really invite us to their parties, that we have to be like them. I want to tell you something, that the most powerful people in history weren't like the people that they influenced. I mean, what are you transforming people to? How many of you know that people can't become what they haven't heard and they haven't seen? People can't become what they haven't heard and they haven't seen. When they, when you, I think it's Ephesians says this, um, all things become visible when they are exposed to the light. It's Ephesians 5.13. For everything that becomes visible is light. How many of you know when God exposes you, you are light? When God exposes you, when He exposes you, He gives people something to become. He gives them a picture. He gives them, and as they get as they get exposed to the light, how many know that the light that's emanating from you is actually beginning to saturate them? All you need to do is just be you. Like you don't need a message. You are a message. It's written in your hearts. When people see that you love them unconditionally, that is a message. If you get to say Jesus, so that's great. If you get to talk to them, they open up, they begin to ask you questions. That's all awesome. It, it, I, I'm not even, I don't even have problems with debates in the, right, in the right context. All I'm getting at is that we can't stop loving people just because we don't agree with them. And it's got to be felt, love. Are you with me? There's a difference between speaking the truth in love and loving to speak the truth. People get those confused. I just love to tell people they're wrong. I, love, I got the right argument. It's like you got the right argument but the wrong heart. Let's have the right heart and allow the Lord to just like leaven put us into society. Listen, I really feel like this is a really relevant message for where we're going in 2009. Because the Lord is going to begin to move us into society. I remember um, there was a man who had a TV station here and um, he was down at the mall, and he, was inter- he asked if he could interview me. He was just interviewing a bunch of people in the community, not about you. And he said, oh, that would be great. Please do that. I'm totally open to that. I said, okay. So I just shared some stuff with him, just, you know, no King James, no Bible verses. I just shared conversationally with him. And as I began to share with them, they began to cry. Both of them began to cry. And, uh, and the next day, he, he called my secretary and said, could I have lunch with you? So... So we arranged lunch, and I, I went down and had lunch with them. didn't know them, sat with them. And, they, and this is how he opened the conversation. Well, for, you know, we had small talk. And then he opens the conversation. He said, you know, I'm going through a lot of things, and because you're a Christian psychic, I thought maybe you could give me some advice. And I'm about to tell him I'm not a psychic. And the Lord says, be quiet. That's close enough. Remember that? The Lord said, be quiet, it's close enough. I'm like, all right. And I'm like, this guy, he doesn't, he's not a believer, and the only, the only um, box he has for telling the future is a psychic. So he says, you're a Christian psychic. I'm about to give him a you know, dissertation on the difference between psychics and prophetic people and prophets and I'm, you know, I'm going to like and the Lord's like no that's close enough just let him talk I'm like Lord he thinks I'm a psychic so 
Well, he called you a Christian. That's close enough. And so for uh, about a year, he'd call me now and then. He'd say, what, you know, hey, what does God say about this? And it wasn't long after that that I, I didn't lead him to Christ, but someone else did. They end up in another church. And, and it just opened the door for him just to, um, and in fact, he, he died a couple of years ago, but it opened the door for a relationship with him. And, and every once in a while, I, I, don't, I think I met with him one other time, but he would call me on the phone and say, I have this decision to make. What does God say about this? And I would, you know, say, this is what God's saying about that. And, and he just related to me like he'd call a psychic. <laughs> that's all he knew. But it's all right. If that's the only path he has, why can't I relate to him like that? I mean, I think there is a time to say, hey, you know, there's a difference. But the Lord said, no, that's close enough. And um, oh, that's good. I, I think I'm done probably a long time ago, huh? So why don't you stand? Didn't use one cuss word. I think. Let's just take a minute just to pray about. I feel like we need to really seal what we're doing right now. I'm not sure how we're going to do that, but let's just see what it is we're supposed to do. So, I have this picture in my mind. Uh, I think it's a prophetic picture that the Lord just gave me. You know, what the message just shared is a walk through a minefield. I realized that emphasizing one side of this either way could lead people into a minefield. I, I know there's, you know, I know that this needs to be heard out of all the core values that we've shared and, and embraced here. And I know that there's several statements that I made that could be taken as something I don't mean. And so I just really want to first of all pray that the Lord would give ears to hear. Jesus used to pray that a lot people would be able to actually hear his heart. And so, Lord, I pray right now that you would open up the ears of your people, of of all of us, and that we'd be able to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. And, Lord, that we'd be able to embrace this new season as we cross over into this new epic season, that you would give us new mindsets and that you would, Lord, that you would... Hide us in society, not in a way that we'd be afraid to stand up for Christ and be persecuted or anything like that, but in a way that we can love people for who they are and bring the kingdom in places that have never seen the kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would move into realms that haven't seen the kingdom ever in the United States, that this would be a new season, that we would be able to move into media that we'd be able to move into education, that we'd be able to move in the political realm through completely, get this, through invitation. Through invitation. They would say, come and give us the word of the Lord. Come and teach us. Yeah, let me stop from praying for just a second. I started to say this to you. Jesus said, make disciples and teach them all that I've shared with you. Make disciples. The word disciples, the word learner. It means that first we're responsible to make people hungry and then we teach the hungry people. 
How many know that some people say, people, people aren't hungry for God? How many know that the first, our first command was to make disciples? That means that we have to make people want to learn. And then we can teach them. But you can't teach people who don't want to learn. So the first thing we're supposed to do is make learners. So let me just finish this prayer. Father, I pray that, we, that what we carry would make people hungry for the King and the Kingdom. That the way that we carry ourselves, the way that we share with people, the way that we earnestly and honor and love people would allow us a place of invitation where we could actually be to the people, that we could be God, that we could be Christ to people, that we could be Christians as we imitate, as we are imitators of God, as Paul said. Father, give us the favor that you gave Jesus so that we can strategically be placed in areas where people who have not been loved can be loved. People who have not been cherished can be cherished and honored. Lord, let us move in power too. I pray that the darkest places of the planet would experience the love of God through signs and wonders and miracles. Lord, let us destroy the works of the devil, but not people that serve the devil. Lord, let us get rid of the cancer in society without getting rid of society. Let us be like master surgeons doing surgery in society and let every patient live. Lord, we pray for that. Wherever the river goes, that people would live in the name of Jesus. And I agree with Banning's word, Lord, heighten my eyes and my ears and my nose have been itching all day, all day. And tonight when we're in worship, I asked the Lord what that was. And then Banny started talking about prophetic mantle. And as soon as Banny started speaking, the Lord said, I'm anointing your senses. And Lord, I pray that you would anoint our senses. Uh, Hebrews 5, right? Last verse of Hebrews 5. That you would anoint our senses. Our very senses, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our mouth. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And, and let's, now let's do this one other thing. Let's pray that he would anoint the senses of the people who don't yet know him. Father, we pray that you would anoint their senses. That's probably even more important, isn't it? That you would anoint their senses. That you would rip the veil off the eyes, off the ears, the nose, the mouth, the feel. Lord, that you would rip the veil off of people's senses in the world that they could sense God. That we could be God to people. That we could be Christ to the nations. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. 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 What are we going to do now? You want to come up and leave? Why don't you? Yeah. Bless you guys.